I gotta tell you, I love me a good town history. Preferably one from the late 19th century. They're so delightfully quirky. There's always the standard info about who settled the town and when and the people they might have displaced along the way. And those Victorians, blasting forth into a new century, loved to celebrate their accomplishments. And it seemed nothing was too trivial to memorialize in print. Marshall F. Bragg sheared 83 sheep between 5.30 a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. This is the site of Fletcher's apple tree. Here, in 1850, John Colony killed a bear. Riveting stuff. All joking aside, what's important to remember is that however kitschy these histories seem, they are a product of their time and culture. As a reader, it's entertaining. As a researcher, it's problematic. Let me explain. Just for fun, let's pretend you're a nerd, and you've read the book of your town's history cover to cover because, well, that's what nerds do. Then, let's say, nerd you, tried to reconstruct that history based solely on what you read in that history book you'd be led to think the past was full of nothing but war heroes, important landowners, and successful businessmen. Now, for more fun, let's pretend you're a time-traveling nerd because, let's be honest, that's also something nerds do, and you were able to stand on a street corner of your little town in the year 1880. What would you see? Only dapper white dudes with monocles and mutton chops? Of course not. You'd see women and children, laborers, immigrants, people of color. The other 99%, the majority. The people who did most of the living and dying in that town and yet, where are they mentioned in that town history? to scramble for historical evidence of the lives of those regular folks. Luckily for me, that search begins right down the road. Hello! How are you? Pretty good. How about you? All right. I'm at my in-law's house, Judy and Scott Northcott in Walpole, New Hampshire. Theirs is an old house, and like all old houses, it's accumulated its fair share of oddities and bric-a-brac. Today, they've invited me to come and take a look at some curious pieces that turned up in their basement. A pair of strange square stones. Of course, that, that where it was now is not where it was all through the years, because that cupboard that it was holding up used to be at our house. Judy grew up in this house and recalls the two stones always being in the cellar. But no one ever said where they came from. I remember seeing the two, the two stones. Of course, the one is still under there. But, but I never knew. Are they, is it up here or is it in yes, the basement? Here. Let me okay. show you. This house is known from old maps in the history books as the Dodge Tavern, a very early 19th century federal-style home over 200 years old. 
and it's probably just what you picture in your head when you think of rural New England. A large, square, symmetrical house, white clapboards, with a number of tin-roofed outbuildings out back. Judy takes me out onto a converted sun porch, where she has one of the stones laid out. And there's the one with the writing. Okay. Can you describe it a little bit? Well, it has RD carved into it, but it's broken. It's maybe eight inches square and two inches thick. You brought it up from the basement, but it had always been in the basement. Yes. Yes, it has always been. Okay. Could you show me where you found it? Sure. Downstairs? This cellar, where the two mystery stones have long lived, feels ancient, with the creaky stairs, bare bulb in the ceiling, and dirt floor. Oh. Really Judy takes me over to a tall cupboard. white shelf lined with full oh, canning yeah. jars. Do you want to try to get it out? If would it would it be a huge pain? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, if we can find something Judy, else to put under. This? We're fishing out the other flat white stone that's currently propping up the foot of the shelf. We pilfer around for a minute to find a suitable shim to replace the stone slab, and then head back upstairs to compare the two pieces. See if can. I don't think it matches. Not that end anyway. Maybe the other side. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'd say oh, they match. That's, that's it. They do. Cool. And sure enough, the broken edges match one another. The white marble slab is complete once more. <laughs> 10 inches wide, one and a half inches thick, and 18 inches long. And so it begs the question, what is it? The initials R.D. carved on the top are the clue. What we're looking at is an old gravestone. Which begs the other questions of, what's it doing in their cellar? And who was R.D.? I'm Gail Golick, and welcome to The Secret Life of Death, Episode 2, Graffiti. Before I give you the impression that I'm setting you up for a poltergeist-like moment with bodies popping out of the backyard swimming pool, you need to know that finding a gravestone around an old house in New England is not terribly unusual. Gravestones were commonly changed out, as older ones broke, or as family fortunes allowed for a modern and stylish upgrade. And to further clarify, what we're looking at is most likely a footstone and not a headstone. Historic headstones were large, highly decorated, and placed at the head of a decedent's grave, whereas footstones were smaller, decorated with initials, if anything at all, and placed at their feet. Footstones were also used to help delineate the dimensions of the grave plot, so that an existing grave wouldn't be accidentally disturbed by later additions to the cemetery. However, as adjacent plots were filled in over time, Footstones were often removed in an effort to streamline groundskeeping. Okay, 
We now know the relative origin of this gravestone, but we're still left with finding out to whom those initials refer. Who the hell was R.D.? In order to solve that mystery, first, let's get our little research ducks in a row. The artifact was found in this house, so it stands to reason that the clues to its owner will be found there as well. We need more information about this house and its history, so let's do some digging. Now, our tavern isn't the oldest in town, or the most well-known. Its claim to fame is less conventional and more endearing. It was once the center of a community in the northwest corner of Walpole known as the Valley. And unlike many such other taverns in the area, it still exists, and it's still full of the whispers and hints from former residents and patrons alike. This place has seen a lot in its 200-plus years, most of which forgotten as soon as it happened. Some events were remembered and passed down through stories, and others preserved in the actual structure of the house itself. Luckily, Judy Northcott's family kept good written records of the history of the house since they've lived here. But there are still a lot of uncertainties, questions, and conflicting information about the tavern from official written documents and from oral histories passed down over the years. In order to figure out who R.D. was, we need to firm up the history of this house. To help us figure out which end is up, I've enlisted the help of my good friend and fellow archaeologist, Matt Labby. Matt knows New Hampshire historics. These Scotch-Irish people first settled in the Merrimack Valley. They had a lot of competition from the English. You build a house on the same spot, you get inverted. I'm just imagining like a four-year-old climbing and shoveling this out. About, you know, people being improper at their taverns, and so there's a lot of, as you'd call it, security. Matt holds a master's degree in nautical archaeology, but he's been able to parlay his knowledge of timber ship construction to that of the timber frame homes common in New England. He's researched and published a study of his own family's historic home, the Hughes House, in Manchester, New Hampshire, a house and tavern in its own right, contemporaneous with our tavern. As an historical archaeologist, Matt studies not only artifacts dug up in a dooryard, but he can also look at existing structures and tell by the types of material used, their style, their manner of construction, about how old a building is and how it's changed over time. It's hopeful, anyway. I love that smell. Judy and I take Matt on a tour of the house, um, floor by floor. We start in the attic. It's one large open room, the size of the whole house. Huge, hand-hewn timbers are still visible between a patchwork of floorboards. The room is hot and dry with a haze of dust drifting down from the roof. That little rectangle, is that what you would have been talking about? Like there underneath? That could be where... In regards to the age of our tavern, the town history is a bit confusing. It tells us that the house was built sometime around 1800 by a man named Gilbert Griswold, though it indicates there may have been an earlier house on site added on to by Griswold. The uh, supports are pretty old, though, because they're vertical sawn instead of radial. It's kind of neat. Radial sawing comes in. Right yeah. Those usually come in 1840, 1850, the radial sawing ones, so it could be earlier than that. It's yeah. pretty neat. 
The original design of the tavern was a two-story square home. The layout is what is known as a four over four, meaning that each floor is divided symmetrically into four rooms, separated by a central hallway that runs front to back. This results in two pairs of rooms on either side of the hallway. Two large chimneys are situated in between each pair of rooms, giving each room its own fireplace. The main entrance faces the road and opens into the hallway and a set of stairs. With historical references unclear as to the age of the house, we can turn to the building's architecture to help flesh out the details. I don't see any kind of marriage marks down on these parts, so that's kind of interesting, unless they're on the sides. Oh, there's scribe marks. You can see here where another different beam came out. Wow, this is really heavily framed on the, the big parts. I mean, these are massive timbers. There's some more vertical sawn. You've got the ads marks here. Um, so do you think those are older? Yeah, those must be original. original and, you know, a timber this wide, you don't get this after, you know, the early 1800s. They just, trees don't exist that big. Yeah. Architectural fashions, like any other style from popular culture, filtered into the countryside from the cities. Trends caught on later and held on a little bit longer on the outskirts. Rural architecture copied the cosmopolitan styles, but was often a little less grand overall. If our house was built around 1800, we will be looking for architectural styles from around that time, namely those of the Georgian period, beginning around the 1710s and running until the 1830s, and the Federalist period, beginning in the 1780s and running into the 1830s. Splitboard lath, which is very early. Yeah, they stopped using this probably, what, like 1820? It just doesn't last this long. Nifty. Do you think that's original? That ceiling, yeah, huh. for sure. So what Matt is seeing at first in the overall style of the house, and from some of the details in the plaster work and the size of the timbers, leads him to corroborate some of the written history. The main body of the house dates to around 1800, the Federalist period but he's also seeing some older Georgian period elements, especially in the windows. The older an historic window, the more panes of glass it will have. A 12 over 12 refers to the 12 panes of glass on the top sash and the 12 panes on the bottom. Older windows also have distinctive muntins, those wooden bars that hold in the panes of glass. And the builders made use of the old style of hand-wrought nails known as rosehead nails for their characteristic wide head. That 12 over 12, that's a Georgian window. So that looks either the house is that old or it was recycled from something older. And these are the wider muttons, which generally, the wider they are, the earlier they are. Yeah, 12 over 12 is usually Georgian mm -hmm. instead of federal. But the majority of the house has the characteristics of a federal period design and one element of the house stands out as not only typical of the Federalist period, but unique to taverns of that time. Collapsible walls. In the attic, the layout of the timbers show specially constructed cavities that create tracks for a set of massive pocket doors on the second floor. So, the, so those two walls slid. Oh, oh, I see, okay. Oh, wow, that's neat. The two front rooms facing the main road were given a set of retractable wood-paneled walls that slid into an adjacent cavity, 
allowing the two rooms to be combined with the central hallway, creating one large room running the length of the house. This gave tavern keepers many options for accommodations. The walls could be pulled open, making a large open space for dances, group meetings, lectures, or musical performances. And when all the hoopla was done, the walls could be pulled closed, putting back the hallway in two separate rooms when guests were ready to sleep. Looking at the remaining chimney on the south side of the attic, our theory has been that its twin was destroyed by a chimney fire at the same time the four-sided hipped roof was replaced. And these aren't the original chimneys, huh? Yes, that one is. That one is. where the roof used to be. Yep. It doesn't extend above the roof anymore, though. And you said, do you know when the hip roof was taken off? You don't. That was the part of the question. We know that that was probably when the fire happened. The Munton profiles on the windows are like 1840 to 1880. So that would be probably about the same time your roof was redone. That yep. would make sense. Yeah. Um, especially if it's a hipped roof, you're not going to have a window on the end. What Matt has surmised, based on the existing structures and layout, is that the house was likely built around 1800, and the carpenters probably reused some bits like windows and hardware from an earlier Georgian period building. Later, sometime between 1830 and 1850, there was a significant chimney fire. As a result, the north chimney was removed and the old hipped roof was replaced by a Greek Revival-style roof. And amazingly, not much has changed in the house since. So now, how does that information jive with the other historical records we do have? Town tax records, in fact, show that Gilbert Griswold constructed a larger-than-average building in the northeast part of Walpole between 1801 and 1802. Griswold had a life that was pretty typical for the era. Born in Killington, Connecticut in 1761, he and his immediate family were living in southwest New Hampshire by the 1770s. As the Revolutionary War began in 1777, a 16-year-old Gilbert enlisted in Captain Flood's company from Alstead, New Hampshire, part of Colonel Benjamin Bellow's regiment. Gilbert re-upped for two more tours before settling down in Walpole and marrying Rebecca Nichols in 1786. But why did Gilbert open a tavern where he did, when he did? To get a complete answer, let's pull back and look at the regional and local history. How did our tavern and tavern keeper fit in? By the early 1700s, the Euro-American population of the southern New England provinces had increased to the point of bursting, and so people began to push the boundaries of their settlements further north into central, upland areas of New England. But the Native Americans living in those regions were none too keen on losing more land to the English settlers, and so began a nearly 70-year stretch of wars between the indigenous Native Americans and the English settlers pushing in from the south. Amidst that backdrop, a provincial settlement was laid out on the Connecticut River, later known as Walpole, New Hampshire, in 1749. After the end of the French and Indian War in 1763, new English towns popped up all throughout the Connecticut River Valley 
and established river towns like Walpole expanded rapidly. The object of this was to get the land settled by Englishmen and strengthen the king's foothold on even more territory in North America. To achieve this, the crown pushed the proprietorship system. Selected proprietors were colonial Englishmen in high standing, given vast tracts of land by the king in exchange for getting those lands settled in the king's name. People had to be organized and moved, land cleared, villages, churches, and town governments set up. All of the civil responsibilities were undertaken by the proprietors and their appointees. No small feat. These upland areas of New England were sparsely populated by Englishmen until after the American Revolution, when the region experienced an incredible population explosion from newly minted war vets. Many of these veterans were paid for their service in land, resulting in waves of army buddies and their families moving north and settling in the same new town. A series of turnpikes, or toll roads, county roads, and other local routes were established to help connect the pre-war settlements to the new ones that were beginning to coalesce around road access and water resources. By the 1780s, these hinterland towns and their infrastructure were becoming more established and reliable. Farms and businesses were expanding and providing more than just subsistence. Production excess needed to find markets, and the new road systems were instrumental in bringing the surplus goods from these farms and mills to the big cities of southern New England. Freight wasn't the only thing moving along these routes, however. As this country economy began to thrive, it produced not only a surplus of goods, but also a surplus of free time, and people took advantage of the road system for leisure travel, i.e. tourism. By 1800, southwest New Hampshire was crisscrossed by relatively secure and reliable roads. People became more comfortable with the idea of long-distance travel, and so began the era of stagecoach travel throughout the region. Where Gilbert Griswold built our tavern was no accident. It was situated at the intersection of an older existing road and the then newly constructed Cheshire Turnpike that connected Bellows Falls, Vermont to Keene, New Hampshire along the main route between Montreal and Boston. Griswold likely got dibs on this plum location and approval to keep tavern in part due to powerful connections from his years serving in the local militia. The original proprietor and majority landowner in Walpole was Colonel Benjamin Bellows, whom Gilbert Griswold served under during the Revolutionary War. Griswold's was just one of many taverns set up along the stagecoach route, so-called because horse-drawn carriages ran in stages from one stop to the next. In those early days of stagecoach travel, it was usually left to the tavern owners and other entrepreneurs along the route to promote their business and fix the roads. An 1802 ad from a Walpole newspaper, the Farmer's Museum, tried to drum up business for a newly upgraded route through Surrey, New Hampshire, for a different tavern, with this catchy promotion. Farmer's Museum, February, 1802. This may certify, to whom it may concern, that the smallpox is entirely removed from the public road through Surrey. 
and that the public may depend there is no danger, and the alterations and attachment to the road from Mr. Reddington's tavern to Surrey are completed, and that the public are invited to come and see. Try the new road to Surrey. Now, smallpox free. The keeping of taverns was not a new concept, but the New England style of tavern keeping was unique unto itself. It was somewhat more communal and informal than what was common in Europe, where many tavern patrons were from. Taverns were kept essentially in people's houses. They looked like regular homes, though some had slightly larger accommodations for extra people and teams of horses. The tavern keepers and their families lived at the house and shared their meals with the travelers. In those early years, taverns served as all-in-one establishments. Travelers could have a meal, stay the night, and have their animals looked after. An 1806 Farmer's Museum ad for a tavern in the village boasted, Provisions for the appetite, liquors for the stomach, and provender for the animals will, at this inn, be always supplied and constant attention paid to every call, either to the larder, the bar, or the stable. And taverns could serve as a boarding house for those new to town who had not yet established a private home or premises to do business. Another ad from 1804 read, William Stearns offers his services as a physician and surgeon to the inhabitants of this place. He may be found at Mr. Southard's tavern. Here's hoping Dr. Stern was a sport and sprung for the private room for surgery. Of course, not all tavern amenities were the kind of thing you could advertise in a newspaper. John Prentice, a local man who grew up in the valley from 1857 to 1952, recalled stories he was told about the operations of our tavern in its heyday. The Dodge Tavern was a stopping place for the teams from as far north as Canada, hauling goods to and from Boston. The old barn was where the horses were stabled, and it had a secret cellar under the floor of the grain room. This was said to be used as a hiding place for smuggled goods from Canada. Mrs. Edith Tiffany said, Silk smugglers came this way to avoid the village, put up at the tavern where a team could be driven into the barn and completely concealed. To compete, rural taverns had to do a little bit of everything. They acted as small mercantiles, post offices, and, unsurprisingly, suppliers of liquor and wine. People of the 18th and 19th centuries drank a lot of alcohol. It was served in some form at all meals throughout the day and was usually a prerequisite in securing a labor force. Men hired to cut hay or raise a barn expected to be paid in rum. Almost every household maintained orchards, not for fruit to be eaten, but to be drunk as hard cider. In taverns, along with serving drinks to travelers, sold incredible amounts of rum, gin, brandy, and wine to the locals. Towns may have been vigilant about regulating the number of taverns in their town, requiring the tavern keeper to apply for a yearly tavern license, but the amount of liquor they sold was not strictly monitored. Again, local John Prentice recalled the presence and importance of alcohol to the lifestyle of the era. 
Laws controlling the sale were unknown, and anyone could buy from a glass to a gallon as desired. Many of the farmers felt it necessary to have a little rum on hand for haying, but I am sure, while liquor was much lower priced than at present, there was drunkenness and much less trouble on account of liquor. By the early 1800s, taverns had become the meeting place for locals to drink and gossip, as well as provide accommodations to travelers. In an effort to be more competitive among all the stage routes and to bring some extra money in the winter season when travelers were scarce, taverns would play host to exhibitions and lectures. For example, in February 1805, a tavern in the village hosted a traveling wax figure exhibition, which depicted, among other things, the infamous duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Taverns would also rent out their larger rooms as meeting spots for local groups or dances. Our tavern, with the two big pocket doors on the second floor, was certainly built with such uses in mind. Throughout the first 10 years the Griswolds ran their tavern, tax records indicate they added to the main house and its complex of outbuildings and grounds. There were several large barns to accommodate stagecoach teams. As local John Prentice asserted, their barn could conceal an entire coach and team of horses. They added gardens to feed themselves and travelers, as well as an acre of orchards to make hard cider. It seemed as though business was good at the tavern for Gilbert Griswold, and he was successful enough over the next 25 years to entice a new buyer. This change in ownership seems to coincide with some of those structural and aesthetic changes Matt Labby noted in the attic. The Munton profiles on the windows are like 1840 to 1880, so that would be probably about the same time your roof was redone. That yeah. would make sense, yeah. um, especially if it's a hipped roof. You're not going to have a window on the end. Well, the roofs there. come yeah. when they um, were trying to do the Greek revival stuff. 1830s-ish era. That... Yeah, that fits pretty well. So far, everything has fit pretty well with that. Okay, good. And all of that dovetails nicely with historical documents and some oral history. Back in the attic, we start looking around at some of the later renovations to the house. On the one remaining chimney, a faint angled line in the brick can still be seen, representing the location and pitch of the original roof line. These ones stick out specifically to hold something, but I don't think so because it kind of turns over here. The four-sided hipped roof was likely affected by the same fire that destroyed the northern yeah, chimney. But if we're looking at the line, I mean, oh, yeah, it can't right. go any lower oh, than about yeah. here. Frank Dodge said that his father and grandfather changed the roof. And Frank so Dodge was the next-door neighbor of Judy's father in the 1920s and 30s. Frank's father, Gardner, and grandfather Reuben moved to Walpole around 1820. Soon after their arrival in town, Reuben also began keeping tavern in the valley, not far from the Griswolds. In 1827, Gilbert Griswold died, and that same year, Reuben Dodge gave over the operation of his first tavern to his son-in-law. By 1830, around the same time of the roof and chimney renovations in our tavern, Reuben is again applying for a tavern license. At this point, it's unclear where Reuben was keeping tavern. We know that the Dodges eventually buy the tavern from the Griswold family in 1848. But 
they might have moved in and started keeping tavern at Griswold's earlier. No one from the Griswold family applied for a tavern license after Gilbert's death, but Reuben Dodge did. He began applying for those licenses during the same period of the tavern roof remodel. And if Frank Dodge is to be believed that his father Gardner and grandfather Reuben did the remodel, it seems logical that the Dodges put time and effort into a building and business in which they already had a stake. So, by the mid-1800s, our founding family, the Griswolds, had passed on their tavern business to a new family, the Dodges. And in case you hadn't noticed yet, the Dodges' presence at our tavern helps us solve our basement gravestone mystery. Remember who the hell was R.D.? Reuben Dodge. Okay, so we are in the Drewsville Cemetery, which is a really lovely little cemetery tucked off in the back corner of the village here. Oh, okay. So about halfway up the little access road here that runs through the side of the cemetery, we've got the Dodges. Reuben died 1851, Anna 1853. We've got parents, Reuben and Anna, their son, Gardner, his wife, Fanny. And right behind them is, uh, is their daughter, Mahitable Dodge Quinton, and her husband, Josh Quinton, a little ways away. But the important thing to note is that I do not see any footstones around these graves. So if they ha if they were here, they had definitely been removed and I don't see many many throughout this this cemetery. There's a few, but not but not a lot. And I think the font that was used on these two gravestones, the ones of of Reuben and particularly of Anna, look very similar to the very the very blocky writing that we see on that footstone that's in the house. I'd buy that. I'd buy that. The Dodges bought up a large plot in the Drewsville Cemetery, just down the hill from the tavern. Parents, Reuben and Anna, died first in the 1850s, and as the rest of their family passed in turn, they began to fill up the plots around their parents. Most likely, Reuben's footstone was removed when his daughter, Mehitable Quinton, and her family were interred behind them. And though Reuben and Anna never lived at our tavern themselves, they were, however, next-door neighbors, the Dodge Tavern was home to many of their direct descendants for some 60 years following their deaths. And when the footstone was removed, it was kept within the family. A good Yankee never throws anything away. After Gardner and Fanny Dodge took over our house, it's unclear how long it was run as a tavern proper. By the time the Dodges officially bought the tavern from the Griswolds in 1848, the end of the tavern era was well underway. Three major events in the preceding years dramatically reshaped the social life of rural New England. The arrival of the railroad, the advent of the temperance movement, and the settling of the Midwest. The Cheshire Railroad made its way through the area between 1848 and 1849. On top of increasing the comfort and speed of travel, 
railroads bypassed old stagecoach routes and drew the majority of long-distance travelers away from rural areas in favor of railroad hub towns and destination vacations. By the 1840s, taverns were falling out of fashion, as most travelers began to expect more luxuries and comforts in their accommodations. A rustic pot of stew crammed around a table with a tavern keeper's family and sharing a bed with a stranger just wasn't going to cut it. And then there was temperance. A 19th century social movement that urged people to give up alcoholic beverages completely. People saw themselves coming into a modern age, and alcohol was considered old-fashioned and backwards at best, and the source of social disintegration and disorder at worst. And it was true. The overconsumption of alcohol led to the neglect of family welfare and increased incidence of child and spousal abuse. The movement began to gain strength in the 1820s and 30s, culminating in a statewide prohibition in New Hampshire in 1855. And just as devastating, Rural New England began experiencing a mass exodus of its population to the Midwest. New England weather was severe, the soils marginal, and markets unpredictable, and the average person was constantly teetering on the edge of survival. Throughout the rest of the 19th century, the drain on the New England population continued as hundreds of thousands of people left, trying their hand at life in the city or in the flat, rich farmland of the Midwest, leaving many once exciting and prominent New England towns almost all but abandoned. How did those, like Gardner and Fanny Dodge, weather the social changes of their day? Town records say that Gardner applied for tavern licenses in 1838 and 1839, but unfortunately, all town records stop there. That isn't to say our tavern didn't carry on in some capacity after that, perhaps accommodating localized stagecoach traffic and continuing to rent out their expandable room for dances and meetings. But by the 1850 census, Gardner Dodge is listed as a farmer, not a tavern keeper. Censuses over the next 30 years continue to list Gardner as a farmer. At that point, farming probably was his main source of income, and tavern-keeping activities greatly diminished or terminated completely. The tenure of the Dodge family in the tavern is quite extensive, from some time in the 1830s to 1908. Gardner and Fanny ran their tavern for a while, but also raised a sizable family in that house. Sarah Ann, Nellie, Francis, John, Stella, Henry, Charles, and Frank. And though the Dodges are long gone, hints of their lives are still showing up in that house today. Back in the attic, the house isn't done sharing its secrets. Where up here did Grammy find that letter? Over by the top of the stairs. Years ago, Judy's mother, Roxana, found a loose bundle of papers and fabric tucked in a small cavity running down beside the staircase to the attic. That's when she found the, the letter. See right down in here? That little 
Because mm, at the top the of the old stairs. chimney would have been right here, I suppose. Well, yes. I'm Among sure the bundle was a letter, a tiny letter, whose ink was quite faded and difficult to read. The first line, however, was tantalizingly legible. Camp near, near Manassas, Manassas Junction, Junction, July 1st, 1862. Mrs. C. C. Rich. Dear Madam, Charles C. Rich was detailed about the 1st of May to go to Washington after horses. There he left the party and we have heard nothing of him since, except that he was seen once in Washington dressed in citizen's clothes, and he is reported to the colonel as absent without leave. Yours, Charles S. Kidder, Orderly Sergeant. Hey there, nerds! You've made it to the end of The Secret Life of Death, Episode 2, Graffiti, Part 1. If you want to see how the story ends, the second half is available on the website at www.thesecretlifeofdeath.com. Special thanks due for this episode. Historical Consultant, Matt Labby. Voice Actors, Tom Dernford. Jim Schofield, Jim Bacham, Teresa Janison, Judy Northcott, Scott Northcott, Chris Northcott, Kate Northcott, David Northcott, and Matthew Northcott. Original Musical Compositions Percussion and Guitar by Jennifer Vanell, Ukulele by Gail Golick Musical Performances Percussion by Jennifer Vanell at Denver Percussion in Denver, Colorado. Visit them at www.denverpercussion.com or call at 720-219-9758. Guitar was performed by Jennifer Vanell at Badger Studios in Denver, Colorado. Ukulele by Gail Golick. If you're interested in more fun with us here at The Secret Life of Death, I don't know, is that even possible? Find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash The Secret Life of Death backslash for weekly posts about my cemetery travels. Thanks again, everyone. <laughs>